Zechariah 14. We end our study. Can you believe it's been 14 weeks? And we're done. So two weeks from tonight, you've got to come back next week, April the 11th, and you've got to be here on April 18th. I'll be checking even though I'm not going to be here. You could, yeah. And then April 25th, we're going to start a new series on what does it really mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ looking out of the Gospel of Luke. Tonight, Zechariah 14, I'm just going to go down through this chapter. It's on the return of the king. Zechariah is going to end his great prophecy talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ and the destiny that God's people who believe in him will have one day, the glorious uh, destiny that they have. I want to point this out because this is important. In fact, it even makes some of the other scriptures you hear like, though sorrow uh, endures for a night, joy comes in the morning, that concept that you find. Well, let's not forget that in Hebrew culture, the setting of the sun rather than the rising of the sun marks a new day. Okay? See, for us, we start our day with the rising of the sun. To the Hebrews, the start of the day is the setting of the sun, not the rising of the sun. So that though the day of the Lord, as we've been talking about here in Zechariah 12, 13, and 14, begins in darkness, the great tribulation, it will end in the light and brightness of the glorious second coming of Jesus Christ. So though the day starts out dark, if you will, it ends in glorious light. And that's what Zechariah is going to zero in on tonight. Let's begin looking at not only the return of Christ, but all these sort of dramatic events that surround the return of Christ. And as we read these, I want you to know tonight, you, if you are a child of God, if you are a born-again Christian, you are in Zechariah 14. We're going to see that in just a moment. First of all, notice in the first couple of verses that the day of the Lord is about to come. And, and the Lord through Zechariah is saying, look, it's going to be a bad time. Possessions will be divided, plunder in your midst, for I'm going to gather all the nations against Jerusalem to wage war, and the city will be taken. What Zechariah is describing here is the Old Testament version of the Battle of Armageddon, the book of Revelation. You see, God has said, in the end, I'm going to gather all the nations against Jerusalem and all the nations against Israel, and I'm going to gather them together. I'm going to bring them together for this great final battle, if you will, on earth. What's very interesting is if you look at Revelation 16, 16, is the Bible says that the spirits, and I think in that context it's talking about demonic spirits, actually gather the armies of the world together against Israel. Well, then if you go to this, you go, well, wait a minute. But the Bible says God is actually gathering them together. And it is a reminder to us, again, that it is the Lord who rules over all. That even in the demonic world, they may think, hey, you know what? We're doing this. We're, we're gathering the armies together. But actually, it's all under 
the sovereignty of God. God is making sure that history is going to happen the way he has said it's going to happen. I mean, think about it even in the, the, the situation with the crucifixion of Jesus. I, I believe that, that Satan and the demonic realm really thought that they had gotten one up on God, if you will. Look, we've got, we've got the Roman authorities coming against Jesus. We've got the Jewish authorities coming against They're going to crucify him and put him to death. And they probably thought, we, but that was all in the plan of God. That, that was all in the, under the sovereignty of God. God was the one that did it. And God is the one that's going to gather all of these nations together because He wants to bring them all together so that in a sense, He can once and for all destroy them and put down this worldwide rebellion against His sovereignty. So He's the one that's going to be behind it all. But it's ultimately going to be re to reveal the gloriousness of His Son. So then notice in verse 3. After he's gathered them together, and by the way, chapter 14 of Zechariah is not in chronological order. It's one of those passages, one of those places in the Bible where it could be confusing if you try to just go down through the chapter and go, well, this is what's going to happen chronologically. No, sometimes it's out of order. And it's sort of like a jigsaw puzzle. You've got to put it into order yourself as you, as you have the Spirit lead you and guide you. And even sort of common sense here if you will. Okay? So notice verse 3. Then the Lord will go to battle and fight against those nations just as He fought battles in ancient days. God is not only going to gather the nations together, once they get there, He's going to fight those nations. Now, it's not going to be much of a fight. Can I just tell you? In fact, Second Thessalonians tells us that it is by the very breath of Jesus. He doesn't even have to say anything. The very breath of Jesus, read it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, will destroy the Antichrist. The breath of Jesus destroys the Antichrist. You see, God doesn't have to like literally... But here's the cool thing. What it's telling us and what we sang about tonight is that God is a warrior God. He fights battles. And He fights our battles. And, and notice Zechariah says, he's going to fight just like he did in the old days. Well, to the Jew, they, they had some memories of some of the awesome battles that God fought on their behalf. Think about the Exodus. Think about the way God fought against Pharaoh to release his people. Go, come to Joshua, the book of Joshua, and think about the battle of Jericho. Think about in Joshua chapter 10 about the battle against the Amorites when God made what stand still? The sun. So that they could win the victory. Zechariah is saying, that's our God. He can even make the sun stand still so we can win. Again, nothing too hard, nothing too difficult for God. He is the almighty God. And so Zechariah is saying, if God's going to fight, whoever's on the other side is going to lose. Whoever's on the other side of God is going to ultimately lose. So God's going to gather all the armies that are against Israel and Jerusalem together, and then He's going to fight. Then notice this, verse 4. On that day, His feet, whose feet? I believe Jesus' feet. is going to literally stand 
on the Mount of Olives, which lies to the east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in half from east to west, leaving a great valley. Half the mountain will move northward and the other half will move southward. Now, before I go on, let me say this. This is one of the things that separates the second coming of Jesus from the rapture. Remember, the Bible teaches us in the rapture, he never sets foot on the earth. He gathers his people together in what? The clouds. He comes in the cloud. He never sets foot on the earth. So that's one of the big differences between being able to separate in the Bible when it's talking about the rapture compared to when it's talking about the second coming. Here, he literally sets foot on the earth. And where does he set foot? Mount of Olives. Where did Jesus ascend from? The Mount of Olives. Remember what the angel said to his disciples? Why are you standing here gazing? This same Jesus, who so went up this way, is going to come back the same way, just as you saw him go, right back to the Mount of Olives. And why is he doing this? Well, here, not only is he gathering the nations together, not only is he fighting this battle, but he's going to make a way of escape for his people. God makes a way. Why does he split the Mount of Olives in two? Notice verse 5. Then you will be able to escape through this mountain valley that basically God himself created. The awesome power of God. Can you imagine it? Jesus is going to set foot on the literal Mount of Olives and it's literally going to split into two. And it's going to create an escape route for those Jews in that day to be able to escape from the great battle of Armageddon and from all the bloodshed and everything that's going to go on there for those that believe in Him, for those that trust His Word, for those that believe in His way of escape, for those who believe in the ark, if you will, of safety that He's giving them, they will have a way of escape. It's a great reminder to us. God will make a way through something for us, through anything for us. God will make a way. He has amazing, awesome power. But what you and I have to do going back to Sunday's message is have the faith to believe in his way of escape through something, you see. And that's what those Jews who believe in him will do in that day. He will gather the nations. He will fight the battle. He will give his people a way of escape. Then notice verse 5. Here's where you and I are in Zechariah 14. Then the Lord, my God, I love that. Zechariah makes it personal, doesn't it? He's saying the mighty ruler of the universe isn't just a God, he's my God. Remember that today. Remember that this week. The mighty ruler of the universe is your God. He's not just your shepherd, he's your God. And if God is for us, what's, yeah, who can be against us? But notice this. Here's where you and I are in Zechariah 14. Then the Lord will come with all his holy ones with him. Do you know who the holy ones are? That's you. That's me. And the reason we know that's us is because this is the second coming. This is not the rapture. We'll have already been in heaven. We, we either are going to die to go to be with Jesus already... Or we're going to be alive when the rapture comes. But either way, we're going to already be with Him. 
when he comes back in the second coming after at the end of the tribulation. And we're going to come back with him. In fact, keep your finger there. Go to one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Revelation 19, verse 11. This is a more detailed description of the second coming of Jesus. It really shows that Jesus no longer is the humble servant that came to die on the cross for our sins, but is now the King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation 19, 11. Then I saw heaven open, and here came a white horse. The one riding on it was called Faithful and True. We sang about that tonight. And with justice he judges and goes to war. His eyes are like a fiery flame, and there are many diadem crowns on his head. He has a name written that no one knew except himself. He is dressed in clothing dipped in blood, and he is called the Word of God. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God. Jesus. The armies that are in heaven... That's you and I. Dressed in white, clean, fine linen. Can I tell you? I don't like linen, but I'll, I'll wear that. <laughs> We're following him on white horses. I'm not a big horse person either, but I'll be riding that white horse with Jesus. From his mouth extends a sharp sword so that with it he can strike the what? The nations. The same nations that Zechariah said God is going to gather together and fight against, Jesus is going to strike them. He will rule them with the iron rod. He stomps the winepress of the furious wrath of God, the all-powerful. He has a name written on His clothing and on His thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. Folks, we're going to see all this. We're going to not just see it from a distance. We're going to be right there. We're going to be riding those horses. We're going to be accompanying Jesus back to earth. And we're going to see Him in all His glory. Unbelievable, isn't it? Then notice the renewal of creation. The light of the world is now going to change the lights of the world. Notice verse 6. On that day, there will be no light. In fact, the sources of light in the universe are going to congeal. They're going to go from a fluid state to a solid state. That's what the word congeal means. Well, obviously, we know if you study stars and, and the sun and all that, they're fluid, right? God's going to harden them up and they're going to stop shining. But they're not going to need to shine. Because guess who's going to light the world? Jesus. Jesus is going to light the world. Not only that, but it's going to be a day unlike any other because it says in verse 7, it will happen in one day, a single unprecedented day known only to the Lord. And notice, not in the day or the night, but in the evening there will be light. We're not used to that. Maybe if you lived in Alaska, you'd be used to being light at night. But here, this day, it's going to be evening and yet it's going to be brilliant light. Moreover, on that day, and we've talked a lot about this with the Holy Spirit, living waters will flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and the other half to the western sea. It will happen both in summer and in winter. Now I want you to keep what I'm about to say in mind because it's going to come into play in just a few minutes later on. But notice the land, the land of Israel, which is where we're at here, 
which is normally very dry and arid, is going to be transformed into a fertile paradise one day during the millennial kingdom and the millennial reign of Jesus on earth. You see, Jesus is going to take what is desert and he's going to literally make it blossom and bloom into this fertile paradise. In a sense, it's going to be Garden of Eden restored. Now keep that in mind. Then notice verse 9. Not only is the Lord going to come back with all of His holy ones, but then verse 9 says, the Lord will then be king over a part of the earth? No, over all the earth. That's the millennial reign of Christ. That's where Revelation eleven fifteen comes into play. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, Handel's Messiah. By the way, can I share for just a moment some dumb theology that's been out there for hundreds of years and it's actually gaining traction in the last 50 years in our world today, even amongst Christians? If you hear about it, if you read about it, be careful. It's called dominion theology. Dominion theology. Dominion theology is taught in a lot of churches today in America. What is dominion theology? Dominion theology teaches us that we, the church, are literally going to change this world and make it perfect. And that we're going to do all this so that Jesus can come back and rule the perfect world that we brought about. That's dominion theology. Folks... We're going to see here in just a minute, even during the millennial kingdom, things aren't perfect. Even with Jesus reigning in the millennial kingdom, things aren't going to be perfect. That is not the message of the Bible. And the only one that's going to start straightening out this world anyway isn't us, it's Jesus. The only thing that God asks us to do is to go into all the world and make disciples. He doesn't tell us to make a perfect world, a utopia on earth. That's never been the, the goal of the church. That's never been the goal of a Christian. The goal of the Christian is to impact people's lives for Jesus and to make disciples. That's what the church is to be about. To glorify God in all that we do, to worship Him and to make disciples. It's not to make this earth this perfect utopia and then basically say, okay, Jesus, we've got the world just where you need it to be. Now you come back and reign. But I want to tell you something. This dominion theology has been around, as I said, for hundreds of years, and it's all over the place today, and it's gaining popularity. So be aware of it out there. All right, verse 9. In that day, the Lord will be seen as one with a single name. He is the one and only God. There is no other. Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord our God is one. Notice the restoration, too, of the city of Jerusalem. All the land will then change. Again, it's going to become like a fertile paradise. And then I want to direct your attention down to verse 11 real quick. Jerusalem will dwell in security finally. It will not dwell in security and, and not be threatened from its enemies until the millennial reign of Christ. So there's not going to be any peace for Jerusalem or that Middle East area for quite a while yet, okay? can talk about it, but it's not 
It's not going to happen anytime, at least lasting. How many of you ever uh, see or, or remember um, the first Indiana Jones movie? Remember the scene where at the very end where they start to melt? You know where they got that, don't you? Zechariah 14, 12. Look at the divine judgment upon those that will not um, come to the Lord. This will be the nature of the plague or divine judgment, which the Lord will strike all the nations that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will decay while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will rot away in their sockets and their tongues will dissolve in their mouths. Pretty good picture. This is what the destiny is of those who come against God's people. This is what they're going to face. Not the glorious return and kingdom of Jesus, but they're going to be destroyed right there on the spot. In fact, verse 13 says, On that day there will be great confusion, uproar, and unsettling among them. And it's going to come from the Lord. They will literally turn on, seize each other, and attack one another violently. God is going to judge the world once and for all. But for those who believe in Him, what a glorious kingdom awaits them for 1,000 years. Now, here's the thing. Let's not forget, before we get into verse 16 and wrap this great book up tonight, that again, there's been a lot, I've given you a lot tonight, but once the battle of Armageddon takes place, And Jesus comes, and we come with Him, and He puts down all worldwide rebellion against His rule at that point. Those who have come against Jerusalem, there's still going to be people then that enter into the Millennial Kingdom who physically survive the tribulation and who go in there with us, but do not have a glorified body yet. They've not physically died yet. And they're not necessarily redeemed. They're not believers. They have physically survived the tribulation in the battle of Armageddon because, you know, obviously, you're talking about a lot of other places in the world besides the Middle East and what's going to happen in the Middle East that day. And so there's going to be a lot of people that survive and come in, even with all the, the bowl judgments and the trumpet judgments in Revelation, there's still going to be a good group of people who come into Revelation. So the kingdom, the, this thousand-year millennial reign is, again, unlike anything you and I have ever experienced. Because you and I will be not only saved, but we will be in our glorified state. But there's going to be people that we interact with there who are not in their glorified state, and aren't even believers in God. Part of the reason why God says part of our responsibility in that thousand-year reign is we will rule and reign. We will help govern this worldwide kingdom that Jesus is over. That's part of our responsibility as the true church. And God's going to divvy out, each of us, our responsibilities in the kingdom. And some of it will be over other believers and other glorified saints. And obviously God says we will rule the angels too. We will manage them. But we will also be over those that do not yet 
believe in God or even want to believe in God yet. And again, no glorified state. So I wanted to set that up because it, it'll start making, it might make a little bit more sense when you come into verse 16. Then all who survive from all the nations that came to attack Jerusalem, because not every last person actually attacked Jerusalem. They were from the nations that attacked Jerusalem. So he's talking here about Gentile converts. They will go up annually to worship the king. Now let's stop there. You see what happened? Some of them will come to know the Lord during all of this. And notice something. They go from war against God to worshiping God. That's great. That's awesome. And that's our God. God says, I'll take my enemies, and if you're willing, I'll change your heart towards me, and you'll go from warring against me to being a worshiper of me. And that's all, ultimately, that's always been God's heart. To take those who are enemies, because all of us were enemies, if you will, at one time with God. God demonstrated His love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. It's always the heart of God. I want to change your heart so that you go from opposing me and rebelling against me and being my enemy and being at war with me to worshiping me. God wants to bring us to that place. But I want you to notice something here. This is the goal of God. That they will go up annually to worship the king. Go up. Go up to Jerusalem. Ascend. Remember? Jerusalem's the highest point. But I love this. The word worship in the Hebrew means to bow down or to bow before the king. And that's really what worship is all about. Worship, in essence, is putting God in in His rightful place. He's number one. I bow be, I, I acknowledge Him for who He really is. Because everything that we do out of that is really based on us acknowledging that God has that place. He's the King. I am bowing before Him. I am, I am bowing down to Him. I'm ascending up to go down, if you, if you will. It's a beautiful picture here. It's... One of the things that Nicole talks to us about, that worship isn't just singing. Worship's a heart attitude. Worship's about making sure that my heart, because, you know, her and I, if our heart is right with God, if God is in His rightful place in our life, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, number one commandment, right? Then we're going to want to read His Word. We're, we're not going to be able to keep us from this. We're going to want to pray and talk to God. Because that's what we would do if He's in our, His right We couldn't wait to get to church and sing and adore and praise God if He was in His rightful place. In other words, why God says, if you put me in, your, in, in my rightful place in your life, Jesus, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these other things. If we always put God in His rightful place, which is what worship really is, then all the things that we do that sort of define us as Christ followers would just come naturally. They would flow out of us because we love God above everything and anyone else. He's preeminent. He's first. I'm bowing before Him. 
I'll say it this way. If all of us really were putting God in His rightful place, there would be a line waiting at the doors on Sundays of our churches to get in because people couldn't wait to get there to worship God. Instead of just sort of strolling in and, you know. Well, we won't talk about that. (laughs) Then notice also, the Lord who rules over all is also going to allow them or want them to observe the feast of temporary shelters or tabernacles. Why is an Old Testament feast still being observed in the millennial kingdom? For two reasons. Because of what it symbolized in the Old Testament. First of all, the Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration of the harvest. And there's a harvest. There's a spiritual harvest taking place. And so God wants to celebrate that harvest, you see. That's part of why He wants to do it. But it also was a celebratory thing of the Feast of Tabernacles or the temporary shelters was also an acknowledgement that God was dwelling amongst His people. He was with them. And He is. I mean, it's not going to be any more dramatic than in the Millennial Kingdom that Jesus is literally ruling and reigning on the earth and He's literally with us. Emmanuel again, with us. So that's why the temporary shelter feast is going to be observed even during the Millennial Kingdom. Now notice this, verse 17. Here's, this, is, this is something that shows you that the Millennial Kingdom is really a sort of different thing, a different animal. If any of the nations anywhere on earth refuse to go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean there's going to be people on earth even during the millennial kingdom that won't want anything to do with worshiping God? Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. Crazy, isn't it? After, after the seven-year tribulation, after the battle of Armageddon, after seeing all this, there are still people on earth, a lot of them, who go, no, I'm not making time to go to worship God. It's not that important. Think about it. But I want to show you this, because this is important for us. If they don't make time to worship, they will experience dryness. Because the Bible says, God says, if they won't come up to Jerusalem to worship me, the Lord who rules over all says they won't get any rain disobedience always brings drought in our life. When you and I don't make time to worship the King, we will experience spiritual dryness in our life. Because the thing that sort of nourishes us and, and you know, just builds that, that flow of spiritual Water into our life is when we make time to worship God. When we put God in His rightful place. You and I, some of you in here, we've talked about this. And, and I think all of us, if, if I, what I'm about to say can identify with this. You get up someday and you go, I've got so many things to do. How am I going to get them all done? And you get this great impression from God that God is just saying... But if you just put me first first and give me a little time, I'm telling you, everything else in your day will go much better. And guess what? It does, doesn't it? When we put God in His rightful place each day, 
the rest of the day seems to go much better than us just going, God, I don't have any time for you. i got to get to all these other things. God tries to show us, if you get to me first and you put me first, all those other things will actually work out much better for you. And if the Egyptians will not do so, and the reason he's using the Egyptians is because they've been an example, sort of a thorn in the flesh of the people of God ever since the beginning, right? But I want to point this out. Just notice that the nations of the world keep their own identity even during the millennial kingdom. In other words, there's going to be an Egypt. There's going to be a Syria. There's going to, it's not like things drastically change. There will be a United States of America, I believe. Now, I don't know what it's going to actually look like. But the nations of the world will keep their identity even in the millennial kingdom. But instead, notice, there will be the kind of plague which the Lord inflicts on any nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. They'll have a choice. Just like God today. He doesn't force His will or His way on anybody. Every human being on earth will have a choice. But obviously for you and I, we will be glad to go. But for many, they will refuse. Well, let's end this great book with these last words. This will be the judgment or punishment of Egypt and all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. But now look at these last couple verses. On that day, even the bells of the horses will bear the inscription, Holy to the Lord. The cooking pots in the Lord's temple will be as holy as the bowls in the front of the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah will become holy in the sight of the Lord who rules over all. So that all who offer sacrifices may come and use some of them to boil their sacrifices in them. On that day there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord who rules over all. One last point I want to make. And that is this. Everything in the millennial kingdom will be sacred and set apart for the Lord. And there is no such thing in the millennial kingdom as sacred and secular. Everything is sacred. Everything is for the Lord. Everything is important. And, one step further, there is nothing ordinary. A bell on a horse, a cooking pot. You see, he's using things that we wouldn't think, what's the big deal about a cooking pot? If it's used for the Lord, it's an amazing cooking pot. There's nothing absolutely ordinary or commonplace about that cooking pot. And God wants us to get that concept now. Everything that you have as a follower of Jesus Christ, everything you own, everything that God has entrusted you, everything in your home is set apart and sacred and sanctified for the Lord. It's not just this cup and this. It's the Lord's. It's not ordinary. And guess what? If a cooking pot is not ordinary, then certainly you are no, in no way ordinary. You are very special. You are a choice servant and son or daughter of God. And if God thinks that cooking pots are sacred and special and there's nothing ordinary about that because it's used for Him, how much more does He think that about you? You see, I I want you to get this concept. You as a Christian, there's nothing you own, there's nothing you have, there's nothing on you, there's nothing you wear, there's nothing you touch, there's nothing ordinary about you or about anything about you. Because if it's for God, and it's all God's, then it's very, very special. And God wants you to know you are very, very special 
And everything you have is special because it's the Lord's. Let's pray. God, thank you for this great book of Zechariah. Thank you, God, for us ending on such a great note of just being reminded of the glorious return of Jesus to the earth. And that, God, we're a part of it. And we're going to be there for a thousand years helping him to rule and reign. What, what an amazing destiny we have as followers of Jesus Christ. Would you encourage us tonight and refresh us with your spirit? Thank you, God, for the time of worship that we had tonight. Thank you for our time in the word. Bless these folks. Be with them over these next couple weeks. I'm going to miss them. But God, would you give them a great couple weeks with you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys, for being here. We'll see you in a couple weeks.